We're going to begin this morning an 11-part series from a text in Ephesians. And I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be spending at least 11 messages on chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 20. Might seem like a, an odd unit to pull out of a book to preach on, but there are reasons. Let me mention two of them. Some of us on the staff and some of you in conversation with us have felt the need to ponder the implications of our faith for the practical, daily, nitty-gritty dimensions of our lives. Relationships at home, in the church, at work. That's what this text is all about. This unit of Scripture is a very practical unit. Second reason is that uh, I feel coming off of a 17-week series on hope in the spring and the summer that it uh, begs to be fleshed out more what effect that ought to have uh, 8 to 5 and 5 to midnight. Daily. That's what this text is all about. And so there'll be sermon titles like Speak Truth to Your Neighbor, A Small Place for Anger, Don't Steal, Work and Give, Make Your Mouth a Means of Grace, Be Kind to Each Other, and so on. You'll see they'll be very, very close to home. Um... A fair question, then, to ask me would be, Pastor, why do you draw our attention to such little daily relational matters when there are such massive social and global issues to be concerned about? like tension and war in the Middle East or religious oppression in Russia or racial strife in South Africa or the possibility of an AIDS epidemic or uh, imported and exported terrorism or the election on Tuesday? It's a good question. I don't respond with antagonism to that question at all. My answer is this, twofold. When you read the New Testament, a really remarkable thing turns up. God has inspired the New Testament writers, by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, to relate their massive doctrines to ordinary things. Just read the letters of Paul. Read the Gospels. What are the ethical issues that abound? How to treat your wife, how to handle your money, whether or not to get angry, whether you forgive. The overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament is personal and relational. Not to the exclusion of a concern for large global and social issues. So the second response is to ask why that is. Here's my 
guess. I, I think the reason God has done it this way, has given us this kind of a book, is because it's possible, and not only possible, but easy, to be a crusader for a distant cause, say in South Africa or Central America, and still be a self-exalting, corrupt, God-belittling person in your daily life. But, on the other hand, it's very hard to sit under the daily scrutiny of the New Testament when it talks to you about how you responded to your spouse this morning, how you're handling your sexual desire, what you do with your money, how you use your tongue. It's hard to hear that day in and day out from Scripture and not realize that you're a sinner and that you need a great and deep renovation in your heart if you're going to be of use here or anywhere else. I think that may be why the proportions you find in the New Testament are there. Wouldn't you agree that what the Bible teaches most is that the greatest need of the world, whether it's South Africa or Central America or Russian oppression or Libyan terrorism, what the world needs most is the renovation of hard and darkened hearts. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Like what? Well, like plotting to take a Pan Am jet. That's an evil thought. Or like uh, planning to export terrorism somewhere else. Or like oppressing uh, religious dissidents in Russia. Or like stirring up strife in South Africa. These are evil thoughts, and Jesus says they come right straight from inside. And then he goes on and says, murders, adulteries, fornications, slanders. They all come right out of me. Just people like me. And so there's a great need, I think the greatest need, for a worldwide renovation of darkened and hard human hearts. That's where our text begins. It's not surprising, I don't think, that the text, which I've called practical, nitty-gritty, dealing with daily things, should begin with a penetrating analysis of my heart in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 4. Now, why? Let me just, before we read it, let's ask why. I mean, back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he had done this already. We preached on it last fall, you remember? Dead in trespasses and sins and slave to the God of this world, following the course of this age. We know we're bad. You've told us that, Paul, right? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Then chapter 2, verse 13. Don't forget, you Gentiles, you were once alienated from God, cut off from the promises, foreigners to the covenants. All right, all right, we got the message. You have to do it again. Yes, I'm going to do it again. Chapters 4, verses 17 to 19. Why? I mean, we've got the message. We're rotten. I'll tell you again. Why? All I know to say is, we don't hear good that message, do we? 
we don't want to own up to how deep that root of depravity goes. That's why he's got to say it again and again. And he loves us. Because if you try to heal over what is in these three verses, 17 to 19, with some cheap, quick fix out of the newspaper or in a book or at an upbeat psychological seminar, you won't be healed. The root won't be severed. And you'll wonder why all my efforts at external reform are futile. Then I'm in bondage to futility. Well, it's because we never got to the root and owned up to what's here in these verses and severed that root with Christ. Let's read them. Verse 17. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord. That means that it's the Lord's testimony as well as Paul's about our condition. That you must no longer live or walk as the Gentiles do. Now, let's stop there and ponder the words no longer. That, that phrase means that once upon a time, these people were in this condition, right? Don't any longer do what you once did. You were like this. You aren't now, but you were. And back in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, We all once walked in this condition. So, what I want to make clear as we analyze these three verses is that this is not the uh, analysis of some idiosyncrasies of a little sect in Ephesus. It's John Piper's heart apart from the sovereign grace of God and yours. Let's read it now. This is our diagnosis from the Lord. Now, this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer... Live or walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness or your version may say sensuality, greedy or covetous. To practice every kind of uncleanness. That's what God sees when he looks in my heart. Apart from grace. Until we own up to this. Until we feel the force of this diagnosis. We'll never go to the right doctor for healing. We'll accept all manner of cheap. Quick, easy, smooth-overs so that we can have positive, upbeat, happy attitudes. Get along. The world is offering solutions to your futility every day in magazines and newspapers and televisions and articles and seminars and books. And I beg of you, listen. And make this diagnosis of your disease the test to what doctors you go to for the soul. Do they believe this is your disease? If they don't, they're not going to help. As I've meditated on these verses, 
I see six layers in my corruption. Number one, I am most fundamentally and most deeply hard-hearted against God. The end of verse 18, do you see that? Due to the hardness of heart. My deepest problem in life is that I am a hard-hearted person. God doesn't move me. He doesn't attract me. He doesn't delight me. I am a rock. Spiritual things are of no interest to me. They don't tug on me at all. I am a stone under a Minnesota ice layer. And ignorance did not come first. You see that? The end of verse 18, the last two phrases. The ignorance that is in them due to or because of their hardness of heart. How did you get ignorant? You got ignorant because you're hard. My ignorance is blameworthy. It is not an exoneration. It is guilty ignorance. Why? Because it is owing to hardness against God. So my number one layer, the very bottom of this muck in my life, is hardness against God. Second layer in my condition is darkness. Right at the beginning of verse 18, it swallows up my understanding and keeps me from seeing the glory of the gospel and the excellency of Christ. It says, they are darkened in their understanding. And right across the page in my Bible, in chapter 5, verse 8, the same thing is described with these words. It says, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Isn't that an amazing statement about what once they were? Once you were darkness. I mean, that's, that's total darkness. You were darkness. You weren't just in darkness. You were darkness. Jesus said, they hate the light. John Piper by his own nature, apart from my sovereign grace, hates the light in his darkness. He's the kind of person that if he stands in total darkness and out there on the horizon there appears a little glimmer of light, he turns and runs as fast as he can the other way. I hate the light, lest my deeds should be exposed, he says. So I'm swallowed up in darkness. That's the second layer in the filth of my life. Third, the result of darkness is a deep ignorance of reality. Verse 18 says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The reason I say there is a deep ignorance in me is because there is a superficial knowledge in everyone, smart people especially, 
a superficial knowledge. I can know 10,000 things. Right? And be totally ignorant of the meaning of all of them. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I don't think this is an exaggeration for any effect, darkened human beings without the light of God's grace are totally ignorant of the true meaning of every fact in the universe. you agree with that? Here's what I mean. To know the meaning of a fact or an event, is to know why it happened. To what end? What purpose? It's God. If you say, what's the meaning of my life? You mean, why am I here? What, what am I supposed to do? But the Bible says, all things were created by Him, Christ, and for Him. So why do all molecules and galaxies and persons and flowers and pulpits and Bibles and papers and hair and pews and light... Why does everything exist? For Christ. And people who are darkened in their understanding and without the life of God don't know that. And therefore, they are totally ignorant of every fact in its meaning in the universe. You, you just have to grasp that or you won't understand when the Bible talks about the wisdom of this world being absolute foolishness in God's eyes. It doesn't matter whether you're a college professor or an illiterate native. Without the light of the gospel, there is total ignorance about the true meaning of all facts. No matter how many you have amassed in your head. Because the meaning of all facts is that they exist for the glory of Christ. And so the third layer in the evil of my life, in my heart, is a deep and culpable ignorance. Fourth, hardness, darkness, and ignorance yield licentiousness in verse 19. They have become callous. I think that's just another word for dark um, hardness. They have become callous. And have given themselves up to, and the RSV says, licentiousness. The uh, other versions say sensuality. The King James, lasciviousness. What, what's the sense here? What's the meaning of this? I think the sense is this. When, because of the hardness of my heart, the darkness of my understanding, and my ignorance of all true meaning... I start to live the desires, the cravings, the longings of my heart inevitably go after wrong things. That's licentiousness. The craving and the license and the free reign that you give to your desires toward things that are not God or things that are against God. So I think the point here is that when hardness, darkness, and ignorance have swallowed you up, the desires of your life will always be evil desires. It doesn't matter whether they are desires for apparently innocent things, because an innocent thing is an idol 
when it is not sought for God's sake. And therefore it's evil. The fifth layer in my corruption is practice of uncleanness. This comes out at the end of verse 19. It says, greedy now or covetous to practice every kind of uncleanness. So here we are with four layers of, of evil in my heart. And it's natural that the fifth layer would be the outward layer. That is, deeds, practices of uncleanness. Uh, chapter 4, verse 17 says, Don't any longer walk. That means practice. That means deeds. Don't walk or live like the Gentiles. Escape from the futility. Walk a new way. Live a new life. But we know now that we've heard the surgeon's diagnosis that the cancer is just out of control. It's all through. There is no hope. We've heard the diagnosis now, and we just throw up our hands. That's where you have to be brought if you're going to be saved from futility. Just to throw up your hands and say, I am so corrupt. There is no hope in any man, any book, any seminar, any practice. If there's going to be any hope, it's going to take a miracle, a divine Miracle. God has a way to deliver us from futility, but there is a sixth layer of evil. Did you see it? The one I didn't say anything about in verse 18. Alienated from the life of God because of all this ignorance and hardness. So my hardness, my darkness, my ignorance... My licentiousness, my bad behavior has cut me off from God. The one source of hope, life in God. There might be a way for life in God to save me, and I'm cut off, alienated from the life of God. And that's it. It's all over. No hope. Unless God breaks in. And verses 20 and 21 point us toward the escape from futility. We're going to pick it up next week in verses 22 to 24. But let me just say a word about these two wonderful verses. He begins in verse 17 by saying to us, don't live like the Gentiles in the futility of their mind. And then he gets to verse 20 and tells why we don't have to. For you did not so learn Christ. But then something very crucial happens. He qualifies that statement. Some of the translations say, if indeed. And some say, assuming that. And then he mentions two things. And these are the escape from futility. These two qualifications. If you have these, then you did not so learn Christ. And you don't have to walk as the Gentiles walked in the futility of their mind. If you don't have these, then I'm not talking to you, he says. You need something else to happen. What are they? What are the doors through which we escape from futility? He says two things. Assuming 
or if indeed you have heard him. Now, the, the, the versions go apart here. Uh, the RSV and the uh, NIV, I think, say heard of him. The NASB and the King James say heard him. And that's right. I think that's the right translation. If indeed you have heard him. And then the second qualification is and were taught in him. Did you become his pupil? Did you hear his voice? Have you heard the voice of Jesus this morning? Or just the voice of a man? Or the voice of your lunch or the Vikings game? Have you heard the voice of Jesus this morning? And have you become his pupil? So that he's your teacher and your guide. Those are the two qualifications mentioned here. If indeed you have heard him. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 5:25? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If you hear the voice of the Son of God in your deadness, you live. Have you heard Jesus? When you read the Bible, do you hear Jesus? When you hear a sermon from the Bible, do you hear Jesus? Or do you just hear a man tapping away on the shell of corruption? That's the first qualification. Hear Jesus. And the second qualification is, well, Jesus said at another time, my sheep know my voice. They follow me, I receive them, and I give them life. You don't have to be cut off from the life of God. The life of God is there. And all those who hear are received. So here's my closing admonition. My closing plea. Picture a door here in front. It's open. It's wide open. And it's the door to the hospital of Jesus Christ. And the door, it's all one building. It's all one process. The door of the school of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, this morning, in this message, has spoken, if I've been faithful to the Scripture. And the question you have to answer right now is, did you hear Jesus. Do you hear Jesus? I invite you in response to his voice to walk through that open door and become a trusting patient and to become a zealous, eager student. And then nothing in your life ever again will be futile. Everything will have meaning. Because you will be attached to eternity. And from tying your shoes to testifying to Christ will have meaning in the kingdom to come. Because it will be done in connection with Jesus Christ and for His glory. Let's bow as we close in prayer. Almighty God and great and gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that You will make Your voice heard 
Make your voice living and powerful to the cutting asunder of soul and spirit so that people who've never really heard the call of God before might hear it now and come and enroll in your school and register in your hospital acknowledging that the cancer is so bad there is no other hospital. There is no other school. Oh, Lord God, summon your people forth. Strengthen your people. Feed your people. Embolden your people. Make us a great army of witnesses to the great grace and the great freedom from futility that there is in Christ this week. And all the people said, Amen.